I stepped into the restroom earlier and startled myself when I saw myself in the mirror and realized, yes, I'm in costume again. Um, it is time for an honor flight. So for those of you who weren't around in the spring, um, I work with the uh, honor flight out of Wausau. We fly veterans to Washington, D.C. to experience the memorials built in their honor. And so uh, today is one of those days. So I'll be ducking out just as soon as the service is over because we've got some guardian training to do in Wausau at 1.17 p.m. And uh, so we time things down to the minute. And, uh, and then tomorrow morning, bright and early, we'll take off for D.C. So uh, I welcome your prayers. There's a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. And uh, so uh, I'd, I'd welcome that. I was uh, actually lying on a hospital bed in an army hospital with a plaster cast on my leg from my thigh down to my toes. I had gone through surgery on my knee the day before, and the surgeon came in on that particular day and looked me over and then said, the, uh, it's time for the drain tube to come out. And I looked down the cast and saw this tube, rubber tube sticking out of the cast and leading into a hemovac drain. And he said, you'll feel some discomfort. And then he put his hand on the cast, grabbed that tube with his other hand, and pulled. And uh, it took my breath away. Uh, have you ever had a doctor or a dentist tell you, you'll feel some discomfort? It's nice to get a warning, but you sure aren't looking forward to whatever is coming next. It's like that in a military mission briefing when you're planning on taking an objective and your commander tells you you can anticipate resistance. Anticipate resistance. Those were words we never liked to hear. It's good to get a heads up, but you know that what follows won't be easy. Jesus is essentially giving us a mission briefing here in this section of Scripture we're going to look at today. He's telling his followers... They can anticipate resistance. As they carry the gospel message to people who need to hear it, it isn't going to be easy. That's the message we get from this passage today. We're in John chapter 15, and we've been in uh, John chapter 15 for a few weeks. Uh, the setting is this rented upper room that Jesus and company have arranged for where they could observe the Passover. And we have been in this upper room with them since chapter 13, actually. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet in that upper room. They have celebrated the Passover meal, uh, what would become the Last Supper, Judas has left the room to go and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And Jesus has just told us that he is the true vine, his father is the gardener, and we are the branches, and he wants us to bear fruit for him. And now he shifts pretty abruptly to let us know that the way won't be easy for followers of Jesus. We can anticipate resistance. Experiencing resistance was the lot of first century believers, and it has generally been the lot of believers ever since. 
We see evidence of that throughout the whole New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and some other disciples are brought into the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court, because they have been preaching the gospel even though they've been told not to. And so the Sanhedrin, it says, called the disciples or the, the apostles in and had them flogged. There's a little resistance. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They went rejoicing. They were counted worthy of suffering for the name. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes about this resistance again to the Philippians. He says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's been granted to you to believe and also to suffer. And in the midst of resistance, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. By the end of that first century, all of the apostles, except John, had died a violent death. John would die in exile on the island of Patmos. And all through history, believers have experienced this same resistance. Part of my daily devotions includes readings from this book. It's uh, On This Day by Robert Morgan. It's 365 daily readings about the history of the Christian movement. And I can't tell you how many pages of this book are filled with suffering and even martyrdom for the sake of the name of Jesus. The history of the Christian church has been filled with resistance. We can anticipate resistance. I, I got a book offer just yesterday. I, I have this, this book offer thing that comes to me through email, offers me cheap books uh, that I can download to my Kindle, a couple bucks. And so one of the books offered to me yesterday, since I'm interested in history, was called The 30-Year Genocide, subtitle, Turkey's Destruction of Its Christian Ministries, 1894 to 1924. 30 years of genocide. Who knew? Who knew? This has been the lot of Christians since the very first century. Now think of your own experience. Can you think of times when you have experienced resistance, when you have experienced opposition because you bear the name of Jesus? Maybe you've been picked on at school or at work. Maybe you've been overlooked for a promotion. Maybe you've been left out of things. Maybe people don't give you the same benefit of the doubt that they give others. Maybe the resistance for you has been more overt than that. We really haven't experienced as much opposition in our culture as other Christians in other cultures 
have, and do. I know when I was about to speak at a Sunday morning worship service in India, I was warned that some nearby pastors had been dragged out of their churches and beaten. Believers all over the world face that kind of opposition every day. We're not experiencing such overt opposition in our culture today, but that may be changing. Have you noticed? Subtle changes. We're not cast in a very favorable light these days. It seems we've lost the home field advantage that we once had. Things in our culture used to favor church activities. Things in our culture used to welcome Christian input. Things in our culture used to reflect Christian values. Those things are not true anymore. An author I've enjoyed speaks of churches that lament the fact that the church isn't as central in our culture as it used to be. He says, we used to live in a church culture here in America, and we don't anymore. But this author doesn't lament that fact. In fact, here's, here's what he said about that. I'm convinced that the church is at its best on a mission field. Do not long for the return of a church culture. The peace and tranquility, the pleasant programs and endless committee meetings of a church culture church is not where the church is at its best. The church is always at its best on a mission field. On a mission field, the church is lean and strong and has courage and vision. In a church culture, the church becomes lazy and weak, timid and cautious, bloated and bureaucratic. On a mission field, the church is at its blazing best. God has blessed us greatly by planting us on this mission field. There's opportunity here. So we've lost the home field advantage, but that's not all bad. It reminds us that we're on a mission field. A diamond shines brightest against a dark background. Now, I'm not going to suggest that if we're not experiencing persecution, something's wrong with us and we're not making waves the way we need to. I can point you to some, pre some churches that preach that kind of message. This isn't one of them. The gospel is a big enough offense in itself. We don't need to be offensive as we bring it. So we're not looking for persecution but we do want to be prepared if and when it comes. Jesus anticipated times like this and told his followers some important things in our text for today. We need to pay attention to his words because that day may be coming for us. So if you have a Bible, if you have a device with a Bible on it, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 15. And uh, if you need a Bible, some guys are coming down the aisle right now with Bibles. Um, I've got one just like that, so I'll give you even a page number. So just catch their eye if you'd like one of those, and feel free to take it home if you need one. We're in John chapter 15. We're going to be starting at verse 18, and we'll go through verse 4 of chapter 16. So uh, that is on page 753. We have been on page 752 for a long, long time. We go to 753 now. So let's take a look at it. John chapter 15, starting at verse 18. 
if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. So we're going to look at, at just a few things from the text here. First, what we can expect. Second, why we can expect it. And then finally, uh, why Jesus wants us to know. So first, what we can expect. In this passage, you can see increasing levels of animosity as Jesus tells what's coming. I should have said different levels of intensity. My eye went to the next word on my note because that's the first one. It's animosity, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is an attitude of hostility that shows up generally in passive-aggressive behavior. People slighting you or passing you over or not giving you that same benefit of the doubt they give to others just because you're a Christian. Animosity. And it can move quickly to the next level, which is persecution, verse 20. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And that word persecution means to pursue, pursue, to chase after. The, the attitude of animosity has now turned to action. Uh, what was once passive aggressive, aggressive behavior has become active aggressive behavior. You might get uh, notes or letters sent to you. You might get comments made to you to let you know that your views aren't appreciated. Social media has, has uh, magnified this tremendously and created new opportunities for this sort of active, aggressive behavior. Someone can smear your name very broadly, very fast. Verse 20 tells us that 
as people oppose Jesus, we can expect them to oppose us as well. The third level of intensity comes in chapter 16, verse 2. It is discrimination. All this I have told you, Jesus said, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. They'll put you out of the synagogue. Uh, here's where leverage kicks in. Being put out of the synagogue was like being cut off from the life of the community in that day. You would be ostracized. You would be shamed. You would be turned away from places where you would want to buy things you need, like food. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, John talks about the second beast and lets us know that a day is coming that we can anticipate some real intense opposition. He says, The second beast forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Leverage. Leverage. No mark, no purchase. Imagine being shut out of your bank account or having your credit card shut down. You can get a feel for what this could be like. Leverage. And then the final level of intensity we also see in verse 2, and that is martyrdom. It tells us, uh, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. As I mentioned before, all of the apostles were martyred except John. Paul was this apostle kind of born out of time. He was a persecutor. He chased Christians down and had them put to death until he became one himself. And he was eventually martyred. Through the centuries, Christians have been blamed and persecuted for all kinds of things. The Emperor Nero likely started the fire that destroyed much of a section of Rome that he wanted to renovate. And he blamed the Christians for the fire. He called them atheists. He said they won't worship our pantheon of gods. They're atheists. Let's put them to death. And Roman emperors persecuted Christians for centuries up until the conversion of Constantine in the 4th century. And then the Inquisition of the 12th century invented all sorts of ways to torture people in order to get them to confess to heresy, and once they confess to heresy, they could be executed. Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury under uh, the reign of Henry VIII in the 16th century, martyred under Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, and one of her clergymen preached a sermon to the crowd that gathered to watch him burn at the stake. Muslim extremists have put Christians to death in our day. And what's common to all of these examples is what Jesus said in verse 2. These people were all put to death by people thinking they're doing a service for God. Jesus warned his followers what we can expect. Four different levels of severity in this passage. And believers have experienced all of them. And the bottom line for us is we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. 
And now Jesus tells us why we can expect this kind of opposition. A few reasons come out of the passage, and the first is in verse 19. We just don't fit in. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. We don't fit in. I, I just love the, the building 429 song. It says, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. A.W. Tozer put it this way in his book, That Incredible Christian. He says, the Christian believes that in Christ he has died, yet he is more alive than before, and he fully expects to live forever. He walks on earth while seated in heaven, fully expects, oh, and, and though born on earth, he finds that after his conversion, he is not at home here. Like a night hawk, which in the air is the essence of grace and beauty, but on the ground is awkward and ugly. So the Christian appears at his best in the heavenly places, but does not fit well into the ways of the very society into which he was born. The Christian soon learns that if he would be victorious as a son of heaven among men on earth, he must not follow the common pattern of mankind, but rather the contrary. That he may be safe, he puts himself in danger he loses his life to save it and is in danger of losing it if he attempts to preserve it. He goes down to get up. If he refuses to go down, he is already down, but when he starts down, he is on his way up. He's strongest when he is weakest, weakest when he is strong. Though poor, he has the power to make others rich, but when he becomes rich, his ability to enrich others vanishes. He has the most after he has given the most away and has least when he possesses most. He may be and often is highest when he feels lowest and most sinless when he is most conscious of sin. He is wisest when he knows that he knows not. And he knows least when he has acquired the greatest amount of knowledge. He sometimes does most by doing nothing and goes furthest when standing still. In heaviness, he manages to rejoice and keep his heart glad even in sorrow. He cheerfully expects before long to enter that bright world above, but is in no hurry to leave this world, and is quite willing to await the summons of his heavenly Father. And he is unable to understand why the critical unbeliever should condemn him for this. It all seems so natural and right in the circumstances that he sees nothing inconsistent about it. That incredible Christian. We don't fit in. We don't fit into this world's system. And because of that, the system tries to get rid of us. Think of something that you ate that didn't agree with your digestive system. What happened? The system recognizes something that's out of place. The system recognizes something that doesn't fit. The system wants to get rid of it. It's the same with us. We don't fit in. If we did, the world system would love us as its own, Jesus said in verse 19. So one reason why we can expect opposition, resistance, is that we just don't fit in. Another one is that we make people aware of their sin. Look at verses 21 to 24. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. 
but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. We make people aware of their sin. They would not be guilty of sin, he said. Literally, if it weren't for me, they would not have sin. Not that they wouldn't be doing sinful things if Jesus hadn't come or if we weren't around as his followers. It's just that there wouldn't be uh, an awareness of what they're doing being sinful. They wouldn't have an illustration of a different way to live that makes them conscious of their sin. Jesus' presence made them aware, and ours does too. When I was in seminary, I was a weekend warrior, uh, stayed in the National Guard, and uh, uh, I served as a chaplain then. And I remember coming upon a group of soldiers that was just having a conversation. I just kind of I stood there waiting for my opportunity to kind of join in. And one of them, who had his back to me, was using some really colorful language. And the other guys were kind of giving him eyeballs like, look who's there, you know. And he finally turned and saw me. He goes, oh, sorry, Padre, didn't see you standing there. Just my presence was all it took. A little cross on my lapel. It's not that I had said anything. I didn't say anything at all. But it was my presence that made him aware of his sin. People don't like to be made aware of their sin. It makes them want to deny it. And if they can't do that, then they want to deny that it's wrong. I wasn't doing anything wrong. And if they can't do that, it sometimes makes them want to attack the person who made them aware. We don't fit in. We make people aware of their sin. A third reason why we can expect it is in verses 26 and 27, and that is that we are witnesses. Together with the Holy Spirit, we are witnesses to them. 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. We are witnesses. The Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. Now, next week, uh, Lee Rickert is going to be taking up uh, most of the rest of chapter 16, which speaks about what the Holy Spirit will do. And, and the bottom line is the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. And he testifies about Jesus, and he tells us we are to testify as well. That word that shows up here twice, testify, is the Greek word martureo. Martureo. Take a look at the first six letters. What do you see? Martyr. Martyr. That word comes down into our English language because so many people who witnessed for Christ paid the price for that witness with their lives. And so we get our word martyr from that. One final reason why we can expect this kind of opposition 
from people is that they don't know God. Verse 3 of chapter 16, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. It's the bottom line reason, and it shows their biggest need. Think of a man known to us these days as the Apostle Paul, who was first known as Saul of Tarsus. He persecuted the Christian church. He was zealous for God, he will later say, but he didn't know him. He didn't have a personal relationship with him through Christ. And so he persecuted Christ's followers, and it took the direct intervention of God on the way to Damascus to reveal to him the Jesus that he was persecuting. And then the greatest opponent to the gospel became the greatest proponent for the gospel. But how many people died at his hand before his conversion? He needed to know God. And once he did, everything changed. So we can expect opposition because we don't fit in because we make people aware of their sin, because we represent Christ and are witnesses for him, and because the people we're trying to reach don't know the God that we're trying to represent. We can expect opposition for those reasons. So, what we can expect, why we can expect it, and finally, why Jesus wants us to know. Look at uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 4. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Drop down to verse 4. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Two so that's. One in verse 1, one in verse 4. Verse 1, so that we don't fall away. That word fall away is the Greek word skandalizo. Take a look at that one. You recognize an English word at the beginning of that one as well. Scandal, scandal, or scandalize. Uh, what it means is, is to trip and fall. Uh, Jesus was described as, as a stumbling stone that made the Jews fall because he didn't come as the military messiah they were expecting instead he came as the suffering servant who would pay for their sin it it caused them to stumble it scandalized them that word can mean fall away, but it also may just be telling us that apart from knowing ahead of time that we can anticipate resistance, we might just stumble when we encounter some. And Jesus wants us to know it's coming so that we don't stumble, so that we don't trip up, so that we don't falter in our mission. But there's a second reason why he wants us to know. We find it in verse 4. It's so that we will remember he warned us. Now, why is that important? It's important because it lets us know that this opposition that we experience is not unexpected. It's not unanticipated. 
Jesus knew it was coming when he told the disciples about it in the upper room. And he knows his followers are going through it now. He is sovereign. This is not something that's out of his control. It's a part of a bigger picture that he has that includes us. A rabbi named Harold Kushner once wrote a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. The thesis of his book is this. God can't prevent bad things from happening to you, but he'll be with you when you're going through them. Does that thought comfort you? I, I think that offers no comfort at all. A helpless God who can't do anything about the suffering we experience is promised to be with us when we go through it. If God can't prevent our suffering and can only be there with us when we're going through it, then our suffering has no ultimate significance. It has no ultimate meaning. It's out of God's control. He can't help it, and he can't help us. Let me suggest a different picture. There is a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. It's the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. It's this final battle between the Calamines and the Narnians. And on that battlefield is a stable. And there's something dark and sinister and ugly inside that stable. And every now and then a soldier gets captured and someone opens the door and throws him in. And it is what everybody dreads. And at one point in the battle, one of the good guys realizes that as he's fighting, he's being maneuvered closer and closer to that door. And finally, he ends up going inside. But what he experiences is not dark and ugly. What he experiences is blinding light. And when his eyes adjust, he realizes he's been transported to Aslan's country. Surrounded by beauty in the presence of the past kings and queens of Narnia. Perfect fellowship, perfect community. Jesus told us we can anticipate resistance. He knows when we suffer. It's not that he can't stop it from happening. It's that our suffering for him is a part of a much bigger picture, one that we can't fully appreciate or understand until we're standing at last in his presence. And when we are, we will know that it was all worth it. As we serve the Lord, we can anticipate resistance. We don't look for it. We don't try to bring it on, but we can know that it's coming and we can be prepared for it. And so when we experience it, we don't need to fear it. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. 
For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Don't worry about it. He'll give you the words you need. You're prepared. That's a part of what the Holy Spirit will do when the day comes that we need that kind of help. He'll be there for us. He'll help us to do that. And the role of the Holy Spirit is what we're going to look at next week. So come back then and hear more about what the Holy Spirit does. In the meantime, you'll find some questions for further thought in your program insert. I hope you'll make use of those in the coming week, maybe uh, around the table with your family, maybe in a small group, maybe on your own. I hope you'll make use of those. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us with fresh relevance. And thank you that we can know that when the day of difficulty comes, we have been prepared. That you have given us what we need and that your Holy Spirit will even speak through us in that day so that we need not fear it and we need not fear the consequences of the opposition that we can expect. Help us to live then bright and bold for you. We might be faithful witnesses of yours in Jesus' name. Amen.